Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today, I'm going to be talking about a man that I'm guessing most of you have never heard of but when I heard his story I was totally blown away. This guy was really amazing. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Harry Blanchard Wood. He was born on the 21st of June, 1882, in Pocklington, North Yorkshire. He was the son of John Wood, an agricultural labourer, and his wife, Maria Nicole, whose maiden name was Day. The family moved from Pocklington to Strenshaw, near York, where Harry went to school. Later, they moved to York to live at 13 Green Street, Fulford Road. Harry's mother was a relative of James Melrose, an ex-Lord Mayor, known at the time as the Grand Old Man of York. Melrose spoke at Harry's civic reception after he was awarded the Victoria Cross. On leaving school, Harry went to work at York Railway Station as a cleaner and stayed there until he joined the 2nd Scots Guard. When he joined up under the Cardwell system, he was enlisted for 12 years, 7 in the colours and 5 in the reserves. His enlistment papers state he was 5 foot 10, 19 years and 9 months old, when he signed up at York on the 4th of February 1903. In May 1905, he had been promoted to corporal, and by May 1907, he was appointed Lance Sergeant. He extended his service to complete eight years, in the colours, on the 19th of August 1907. Sadly though, this glittering career seemed to be waylaid. In 1908, he was tried by court-martial for drunkenness and was reduced in rank to private. It was as a private that he was transferred to the reserve on the 4th of February, 1911. What Harry did between this date and the outbreak of the Great War is unclear, but he was mobilised in London on the 5th of August, 1914. The second Scots Guards were not among the first troops to head to France, and indeed by the time they arrived, the retreat from Mons and the advance back to the Urns had already taken place. In 
In the autumn of 1915, Wood took part in the Battle of Luce, the first battle in which the newly formed Guards Division was involved. Incidentally, the Battle of Luce was the first time that poison gas was used. 150 tonnes of chlorine gas was released from 5,243 gas cylinders. 600 German soldiers were killed by the gas alone. Out one night on duty, and some say as a sniper, he became detached from the rest of his unit. Dawn came and he was forced to hide in a ditch, the country around being infested with enemy troops. While crawling about seeking cover, the Times and Mirror said, he came across a Belgian soldier in a similar plight, and for days they lived on turnips and apples, which they found in the fields and orchards. And there were many, many times they came so close to being captured by the Germans. The pair must have strayed far from the front line because, having found a friendly Belgian cottager, they were supplied with civilian clothes and forged passports, with which they tramped their way out of the area. Accounts published after the war vary, but some say at one point the pair were sniffed out by a German dog, which licked them, but luckily refrained from barking. Eventually they reached Holland, and Harry got a ship for England. He met his mother in London, who reputedly did not recognise him after the effects of his ordeal. At this point he probably hoped to be staying in England for a while. There is a record that he was on duty as a hospital guard in London in May 1917, when he was reprimanded for not reporting immediately the escape of a prisoner. But the next year, there was a drastic shortage of men and he was sent back to France in March 1918. Word of the Week And for this week's Word of the Week, I give you Dingbat. In the 19th century, Dingbat was used much like thingamy, or whatchamacallit, as a general placeholder for something or someone whose real name you can't recall. It came to be used of a clumsy or foolish person during the First World War, before being taken up by Australian and New Zealand troops in the phrase to have the dingbats or to be dingbats, which meant shell-shocked, nervous or mad. On the 15th of August 1918, at Boyelles railway station in France, Harry dressed his men in black and had them smear their faces with the same colour, which might explain why their nighttime mission to get across no man's land to the German trenches on the other side, he lost the rest of his platoon. But Harry, not being a quitter, carried on and found the German trench in the dark. He heard the Germans talking in their dugout, but unfortunately, he accidentally made a noise and found himself surrounded by a dozen German soldiers. He promptly killed two and shot another before the Germans had a chance to recover from their surprise. He used the wounded German soldier as a shield and a hostage to get away. Later, Wood's captured German was discovered to have important papers on him. And for this, he was awarded the Military Medal.
two months later, on the 13th of October 1918, at Saint-Patin, France, when their advance was strongly opposed and the streets of the village were filled with fire. The platoon sergeant was killed, so Corporal Woods took command of the leading platoon. Their mission was to clear the western side of the village and secure the crossing over the river Sell. Command of the ruined bridge had to be gained. The area in front, though, was full of snipers, so the corporal wrestled a large piece of masonry off the bridge. Now, some accounts call it a large brick, but that wouldn't have been big enough. He hauled it into the road, lay down behind it, and firing continuously on the snipers, he managed to kill three. Under fire all the time, he returned to his men, seized the Lewis gun and returned to take out the remaining machine guns, all while urging his men to creep forward as he covered them. He would eventually take out four machine guns after two attempts, and later in the day he repeatedly drove off enemy counterattacks. It was during this war that the Scots Guard adopted the name the Jocks. Not just amongst themselves, because before long the other regiment of foot guards started calling them that as well. Just after the fighting ended, King George V directed that, as a mark of his appreciation and pride in services of these regiments during the war, their soldiers were no longer to be called privates, but guardsmen. Another less known escape of this courageous soldier, Harry Wood, was when he was once captured by the Germans, but a very brave little Belgian girl persuaded them that he was in fact her father, and he managed to escape. Considering the extraordinary feats of bravery, he came through the war unhurt, physically. Apart from the Victoria Cross and the very first military medal, Harry Woods was also awarded the General Service Medal, the Mon Star and the Victory Medal. Harry was a qualified sniper and was a deadly shot with most weapons. I'll take a moment to note that the Scots Guards were all, it seems, very brave men. Here are a few more stories of their bravery in the First World War. Private James Mackenzie was posthumously awarded the VC for bringing in a wounded man from near the German line. And as an interesting side note, in the autumn of 1914, near where Private Mackenzie won his Victoria Cross, the 2nd Battalion rescued two abandoned cows, Bella and Bertha. The cows went everywhere with the battalion from then on and eventually accompanied them home in the spring of 1919. In the same battle of 1914, Lieutenant Geoffrey Otley led his platoon out to attack a German machine gun, which was causing a lot of losses to the attacking companies in the front. He was hit in the neck, fell, got up again, and led his men on, falling again near the German line. He died three days later, a month short of his 19th birthday, and remains to this day the youngest ever of the DSO. The Distinguished Service Order. A few weeks later, Lieutenant Arthur Boyd Rochefort of the 1st Battalion was in charge of a party of men working on a communication trench at night south of La Basse Canal. When a trench mortar bomber landed on the side of the trench, he saw it, shouted to the men, 
dashed out from his own place of safety around the corner, grabbed it and threw it away just before it exploded. He won the Victoria Cross. The Guards Division did not become fully involved in the Battle of the Somme until September 1916. Just before they did, 2nd Lieutenant Gray Leach, also of the 1st Battalion, was in a building with two NCOs, putting the detonators into grenades, when the fuse of one began to burn. He raced out the door to throw the grenade away, but there were other soldiers outside. He turned against the wall of the building, with it held against his stomach, till it blew up, and was posthumously awarded the Albert Medal in gold, the very rare immediate predecessor of the George Cross. Book of the Week If, like me, you have an interest in World War I, then the book I've got for you this week will be right up your street. It's called A Tommy in the Family, and it's by Keith Gregson, who goes into the human stories behind the conflict. But not only that, the investigations that precede each discovery are explored in detail, offering an insight into how the researcher found and followed up their leads. It's full of handy research tips and useful background information. So, if that's your thing, then this book is for you. Sergeant George Lawson of the 2nd Battalion Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders died on the first day of the Battle of Lewes in September 1915, when 2nd Division advanced in support of 9th Division's attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt. His body lies with those of 78 comrades of the battalion and over 150 men from other regiments, all killed on the 25th of September. They were buried in an extension to the village churchyard at Cambrin, close to the northern part of the front line at Lewes. A letter he wrote to his sister on the 18th of September 1915 reads... Dear Lizzie, I would have answered your last letter sooner, but I have not had much time to myself lately. Since I wrote to you the last time, I have taken on again after thinking the matter over. I decided to take the risk of seeing this through. There is always a sporting chance of being alive and kicking at the end of this rumpus. The betting being about even money either way, I suppose. Now, if I do happen to have back to loser and get bowled over, I think that I had better let you know, as Mother seems to be having trouble in getting John's effects that I've been made out of my will in my active service paybook, leaving everything to her. I hope the letter with the post and the photos arrive all right, home all right. I will not ask your opinion of it, having no desire to bring upon myself any of your sarcastic remarks. But of course, they were not taken by a court photographer, although it would have taken a bit of an artist to have made that group look artistic. I will have to cut this off short now, as I have to go away and I won't be back again before they take in the mail. So, ta-ta at present. I remain your effect, bro, George. One week later, he was killed in action. In 1914, Robert Easton enlisted and served in C Company of the 10th Battalion Highland Light Infantry. He married Mary McKay on Hogmanay in 1914. The battalion was sent to France in May 1915, but Luz went on into action in the first wave of the 28th Brigade's assault on Orshi, on the British left wing, as part of 9th Division's assault. 
Easton was one of almost 650 casualties the 10th Battalion suffered, mainly from machine gun and artillery fire. Thanks to a newspaper report from the Daily Record, dated 13th of October 1915, we know that Easton was wounded on the first day of battle and that his wife visited him in hospital at Boulogne and was with him when he died of his wounds on the 6th of October 1915. She was also at his burial at Boulogne Eastern Cemetery. As this was very unusual, Mary Easton may have been working as part of the war effort in France. On the 10th of May, 1916, she married Private John Pringle of the 11th Battalion, Highland Light Infantry. He survived the war. Harry Blanchard Wood was given a grand welcome home and civic reception in York on the 17th of February 1919. The Lord Mayor himself greeted him at the train station and open motor cars preceded by the band of St Peter's School paraded into the city to the mansion house. Along the route, the streets were dense with well-wishers and fans all cheering their hero. Harry was presented with his Victoria Cross Medal by King George V at Buckingham Palace on the 22nd of February, 1919. Now, he was certainly not unscathed by all these events in the war. In May, when the city of York were conducting the traditional collection of funds for him, he was in hospital, suffering from the effects of his arduous service. He was wined and dined frequently and presented with several gold watches and later the sum of £138 by the city. In London, in September 1919, he did what many soldiers did. He got drunk. A constable in Buckingham Palace Road found him quarrelling with some military policemen, and he was arrested. I am not going to spoil this splendid record of a man like you, said the magistrate, and bound him over for good behaviour. Now, Harry's wartime experiences may have contributed to his early death. He had myalgia, and the Times and Mirror says his health was not good for his last three years. Following the war, Harry went to live at 14 Windsor Terrace in Totterdown, Bristol. He had found a peacetime job through the Corporation of Commissioners, the organisation which sourced employment for ex-soldiers, often as doormen. Later, he went to work as a commissioner for the Anglo-American Oil Company, whose Bristol offices were in Baldwin Street. In November 1920, he was chosen as one of Britain's 100 bravest men to form the Guard of Honour at the burial of the unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey, and attended the Centaph. He had met the King for a second time earlier that year, when managing his store at the Ideal Homes exhibition, when the Royal Party visited it. It was reported that the King spent a long time talking to Harry. Harry's workmates had also presented him with a gold watch and his employers gave him £100 as a show of appreciation for all he'd done for his country. On the 28th of July 1920, Harry married Georgina Dorothy Taylor at St James Church in Plumstead. She was 25 at the time of the marriage and 14 years younger than Harry. Tragically, the marriage would only last four years, when in early August, 
1924 while on holiday in Tainmouth with his new wife. The couple were walking along a street when a car suddenly mounted the pavement, speeding directly towards them. Seeing that her husband's life was in danger, Mrs Wood pushed him out of the way, only to be pinned against the wall herself. Although she suffered only a few cuts and abrasions, her husband, possibly because of his already nervous state as a consequence of the war, was so shocked that he became unconscious. We can only speculate on the nature of Harry Wood's affliction, but the fact that he was taken to the Bristol Mental Hospital in fish ponds shows that his illness was of the mind, not the body. Were his nerves shot to pieces by his time in the trenches? We don't know. But back in Bristol, he spent six weeks in a coma. The Times and Mirror reported that he never recovered from his coma until not long before his death, he opened his eyes and showed recognition of his wife. And then he died. His death, said the newspaper, was the result of a brain affliction. A misprint, surely, which further obscures what really happened. Harry died on the 15th of August, 1924, aged only 42, and was buried in Arnesvale Cemetery, Bristol. Harry's body lay in state in Bristol Cathedral the night before the funeral, with four sergeants of the Scots Guard, Harry's old regiment on guard in full uniform. His funeral on August the 20th, 1924, was like a state occasion. A service in the cathedral was attended by a captain of the Scots Guard with a party of pipers in kilts. Scores of army officers and dignitaries, including the Lord Mayor, attended, and College Green was packed with onlookers. A party of Guard Sergeant Majors bore Harry's coffin until it was laid on a gun carriage and drawn by horses of the Royal Field Artillery escorted by warrant officers and non-commissioned officers of the guards in red coats and bearskins as it wound its slow way to Arnesville, where there was a very large attendance of the public. The pipers and drummers of the Scots Guard were at the head of the long procession. Whilst at the ceremony, they played Scots Whaley, and as they left the cathedral, they played Flowers of the Forest. When the cortege arrived at Arnesville Cemetery, the choir of the Holy Trinity, Noel, were there singing. Then the last post was played as a final tribute. Sergeant Harry Blanchard Wood has a place of honour at the very front of Soldier's Corner, near the entrance to Arnesville. Harry died without a will and his wife quickly remarried and simply disappeared. Attempts by the Scots Guards to locate her after the Second World War failed and his grave in Bristol became sadly neglected. Eventually, at a ceremony organised by the South Western Branch of the Scots Guards Association at Arnesville Cemetery, Bristol, on the 27th of October 2001, a replacement headstone over the grave of Corporal Harry Wood BCMM was placed. A hundred and twenty-six years after Harry Blanchard Wood was born in Newton on Derwent, 
the village's most celebrated son received a permanent memorial to his gallantry. On a centenary of wood becoming World War I's only Victoria Cross winner born in the rural East Riding, dignitaries from state, church and armed services joined Newton villagers and members of his family to unveil a plinth at the end of the village just yards from where he spent his early years. It supports a government VC paver alongside a stone bearing his portrait and details of his life and deeds that have been commissioned by locals led by villager Margaret Horsley. Colin Ragg, speaking on behalf of Harry Blanchard Wood's great-niece, said, For his family it's a great honour to be here today, to honour a very brave man. The act of war brings out the best and worst in man, in circumstances many of us cannot imagine. In Harry, it brought out the best qualities man can possess. He was a true hero. Harry's great-great-great-nephew was born on June the 21st, also Harry's birthday. He is a permanent reminder of our very brave relative. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 6th of November 1957, when 15 people on board a Bristol Britannia aircraft were killed when it crashed at Downend on its approach to Filton Airfield, a few miles away. Another mystery on the 7th of November, but this time in 1974, English alleged murderer Lord Lucan disappeared. On the 9th of September 1947, telerecording was used for the first time when the Remembrance Service from the Cenotaph in London was filmed by the BBC and recorded for retransmission that evening. On the 10th of November 1983, Microsoft announced the release of its first Windows operating system. And on the 11th of November 1920, the bodies of two unknown World War I soldiers were buried, one in Westminster Abbey and one beneath the Arc de Triomphe in France. And lastly, on the 13th of November 1956, the US Supreme Court ruled that bus segregation in Montgomery and all of Alabama was illegal. News just in. In Bristol Crown Court today, a semicolon was convicted of breaking the law. He got two consecutive sentences. Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. In Not Before Coffee I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics like my own personal journey through life struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, If you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living despite not having a driving license, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are, so pretty much everywhere. 
I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I'd just like to mention that the background music you heard for most of that was provided by Really Jiggered, and you can find out more about them by going to their website, really, spelt R-E-E-L-Y, jiggered, spelt J-I-G-G-E-R-E-D, dot com. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.